All right, you can be seated. So last week in our Healthy Church series, we started to focus on the church. It's not that we haven't been concerned about the church the entire time we've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter, but specifically, Peter began to deal with the church. Previous to that, in the first part of the letter, he's dealing with the, the health of the church more on an, on an individual member level. So what's going on in the members and, and the, the, the individuals that make up the church. And so what we were able to learn from that is that if we're going to be a healthy church, then we're going to need to be healthy members together. And so really the health of the church isn't just seen corporately, but it is seen all the way down at the end of the individual level. So we won't be healthy unless we're all growing together in health. And so that's one of the things that we have focused on is, is your individual health. But now in First Peter chapter 2, Peter begins to actually deal with what it looks like to be a healthy church on a corporate level, at the, at the big picture level, on the, on, on the level in which all of the members are come together. And so let's just go ahead and read the passage. We'll dive right in today. And then um, and, and, and we'll, just, we'll just move forward. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, that's Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So for the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But, an important but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy and from this passage, we established a, a second major theme in this series, a, a second major principle that we're actually going to be working out of, that we worked out of last week and we will work out of the next few weeks. But that principle is having been united together with Christ, having come to Christ, having been made like Christ as living stones, having been united together with Christ, he unites us with his people. He actually, as we come to him, he actually brings us together. He makes us one in him to live together for his purpose and together fulfill his mission. Last week, we really dealt with that first portion, the, the portion of, of, of Jesus coming to Jesus and being brought together with his people, the, the membership portion. We talked about membership and the importance of it. There, there is definitely a universal feel to this passage as Peter speaks about the church. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who are scattered and exiled across Asia Minor. He's not speaking to one local church, like Paul often wrote, to one local church, and he would specify that church. Peter's writing to Christians all over, so there's certainly a universal feel to this letter. And he's saying that you are all being brought together. You are all being built together. As you come to Christ, you are all being built together. There's certainly that universal feel, but 
everything that Jesus does universally in the church is expressed locally through his people. We are physical beings that, that are bound in space and in time. And because of that, membership in a local church is important because Jesus didn't just save you to leave you floating around out there trying to figure it out on your own, but he's bringing you to his people. And so it becomes our responsibility not just to, not just to say, hey, we're members of the church, but to be members of the church, to live out what he's called us to do. That's why we think, it, we believe membership matters. Not in the sense of, of, of signing your name to a roster and just getting your name on a list and feeling good about that. Not in the sense of joining a country club, but it, it's not optional. Jesus automatically does it, and so it mattered enough for him to come and live and die and rise for it. And there, therefore, we must take it as important. We must exercise our membership. We must come together as members, as we come together. As we come to him, he is building us together, uniting us to live together for his purpose and to fulfill his mission. And this week, we're really going to deal with that second part of the phrase, the purpose portion. We're going to answer the purpose question. I mean, this is a question that people are always wanting to know. What am I here for? What am, why do I exist? Why did he just leave me? I mean, wouldn't it be helpful to know if you knew what God was up to? I mean, have you ever had... Uh, as a child, did you ever ask your dad, hey, what, what, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to take out the trust? Because I said so. That's what I tell my kids. Because I said so. Just do it. Suck it up. And that's what they did. And if they didn't, they wish they did. Right? Well, that, that, that's So often, that's where we're left standing. And so often, that's what we're left dealing with. We, we just say, okay, well, you just have to believe God's working. But imagine, just imagine how healthy we can be as a church if we understand what God is up to. The beauty of this letter is, is that he has not left us uneducated in it. He showed us individually, at, a, at an individual level, he showed us what he was doing. He's choosing us, he's regenerating us, he's bearing us again, he's reborning us, if you will. He is, he is making us holy, he is making us family. That's, that's the that's the purpose he had in the individuals that he was bringing them and out of the world and making them new, giving them new nature, and then drawing them together in, into a family. But in, on top of that, individually, he gave us commands that we were to follow. And he gave us five commands. He said, Peter tells us that, that we are to hope fully in Christ. That means we're to believe completely in Jesus for every moment from here on out, for my future life, for all of life from, the, from the, the breath I take now to all that will come. I hope in Jesus. I trust Jesus fully. We're to live like Jesus. We're to live repentantly, obediently, holy. We are to fear God only. We are to love one another, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the family that he's placed us among, and we are to continue to grow up in that. So we're not completely these things, but we are to continue growing in these things. Those are the five commands. That's the purposes that he has for each member. But then Peter turns and he begins to show us the purpose, the reasons that he's doing it. And so just imagine how healthy we can be as a church when we begin to see why he's doing this individual work in us. And that's really what Peter shows us. In, in so many things, in so many ways, we're left unknowing. But Peter shows us in two ways 
in two different ways of doing it, he shows us what God is up to and his purposes in the church. And he does that by showing us five me- metaphors, giving us five metaphors to the church, and then he gives us two phrases about what the church should be about doing. And, and we'll walk through today, we're going to walk through the five metaphors next week when we come back. We're going to walk through the two phrases and the, and the purpose or how we put the purpose into action. And so as we read this passage, the very first metaphor we come to is Peter saying that we are being built into a living or, or like living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a metaphor, right? You don't think that, that you're really being built into a house, do you? I mean, you get that he's using language to illustrate something. We call that a metaphor. I, I've learned that in, in English class just a couple weeks ago. It's, it's good for us to understand. Well, what does he mean, a spiritual house? Well, let me give you this phrase, and then we'll, we'll break it out. The people of God are the house that God dwells within. We are the church that he is building. Now, each of these illustrations, each of these metaphors that he gives us, each one of them will allude back to the Old Testament. This particular one alludes back to the temple that the Israelites longed to build. If you remember the story, David wanted to build the house, and God said, no, you're not going to build the house. There's too much blood on your heads, but I've chosen your son to build the house, and then his son built the house, and then after Solomon built the temple, he was all excited about it, and they used it for a while, and then they rebelled, and the temple ends up destroyed, and then they end up getting to rebuild it, and the people of God get to rebuild the temple, but they love the temple. The temple was Jerusalem's claim to fame. This was where God dwelt. This is where God's people met with God. You see, in the Old Testament, that was necessary. But as we come to him, as we come to Jesus, it's not needed anymore. It's no longer necessary. He is building his spiritual house to dwell in. It's his church. He isn't just accumulating stacks of bricks. It's not like he's just accumulating stacks of living stones. Jesus doesn't just want bricks to build with. And just, I'm glad I got a lot of bricks. Amy and I, I mean, you, I think you'll understand the difference of this. Amy and I went to um, Nicaragua. We've been on several trips to Nicaragua, and what we did there was build houses and share the gospel. And so we built the houses as an, as an impetus, as, as an opportunity then to share the gospel. And so the houses were made of concrete blocks and wood and tin, and they really don't look like houses like we would think of houses. They're more like a shed. And so you, we were building these houses, and these people were just ecstatic to, to get them. But at the, the bottom half of them was made out of concrete blocks. And when the concrete blocks showed up at the, at the site, they were on a truck. They, they were on a truck, and they weren't on pallets, and you get to lift them off by forklifts. They were just hundreds and hundreds of blocks stacked up individually on the back of these big trucks. And then you have to hand off everyone individually. And then what we would do is we'd stack them in stacks around the job site so that we didn't have to carry them any further than necessary. But as we stacked them, And put them in the stacks near the places where we were going to build. Nobody made the assumption that this was their house. You see, there's a distinction. Jesus is not just stacking living stones. He is placing them purposefully and intentionally that they might be his house. He's building around a cornerstone himself. He is the cornerstone. The one the builders rejected, he has been made the cornerstone. And so we would take those blocks out of the stacks and and we would place them against the cornerstone. 
against that very first concrete block. We'd set it in the footing. We'd level it. We'd place it so that it was in line, perpendicular, so that we could get a 90-degree turn off of it, and that the walls would be level from the very start. They would be vertical so that they would be true and plumb. The idea is, is that all of the blocks built in that wall were built off of that. They were placed intentionally and purposely around the cornerstone that they would form a house. You see, there is an intention and a purpose in what God is doing in and among his people. He is not just stacking you next to one another. He is building you together. That you might be his house to dwell in. That together he might live in us. And for too long, in our, in, in, in our Christian heritage here, especially in America, I think, we have been trained that this place that we now meet in is God's house. In fact, I, mean, I, I think just to, just to demonstrate this, I mean, you, you could say, oh, I know that's not true, but I think our actions betray that we really think that. Just a few weeks ago, as I was, I, I, I can't remember which one it was, we did, we did a couple of weddings over the last couple of weeks, and at one of those weddings, I can't remember who it was, and I can't remember which wedding it was, but I remember hearing a person tell someone else, well, I can't lie to you because I'm in God's house. We, we have this idea that we're not, we got to act differently here, right? I mean, we raise our kids, don't be misbehaving in church, we got to be in our best behavior in church. As if best behavior doesn't matter anywhere else, right? Like, oh, you can run like a maniac anywhere but in church. We won't lie in church. We're, we're, we, we might say a cuss word at work because, you know, that's not really holy ground. But this, we're not about. And if you do, man, you must really be some sort of special sinner if you're willing to cuss up in here. We, we take special offense if someone vandalizes a church building, don't we? I mean, that makes the news when a church building's been, been burnt or been spray-painted or been robbed. That's a special kind of vandalism. But see, the reality is, is that that is incorrect. That is an unhealthy view. You and I together, along with all the saints who have ever lived and all the saints who will live until the day Jesus comes back, are being built together as a spiritual house. And in this local church, in this local family, we are an expression of the beauty of his house. We are his church. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't be thankful for buildings and air conditioning that keeps me cool and keeps sweat from drenching me right now. If we were outside, I'm going to tell you, it would be a much different event. We should be, be excited and glad that we have tools like this to use for ministry in the world. Just this last weekend, we had, uh, over, over the last three weeks, we've, we've had two weddings here. We, we had a, a human trafficking organization, organization, Go 61, meets here regularly. We are able to use this for ministry. I meet with people in private ways so that, we can, so that we're not sitting in Panera dealing with personal issues. Because we have a place that we can come. We can gather here. But this is not the church. We are his church. Everywhere we go, every place we are, we are his church. He is living in us. 
don't know why it's so special. I think that's why it's so special. Jesus used the term as in, in Matthew 18 as he's about to deal with some church authority and church discipline issues. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Because there is a greater expression of the work he's doing to build his body. To build his spiritual house. We are the temple. We are his dwelling place. He lives in us. And the implications for that are far-reaching. You're not going to cuss here. You probably aren't going to cuss anywhere. If you're going to act one way here, you probably ought to act that way everywhere because you are his house. Second, Peter tells us that we are a holy and royal priesthood. Now, he, he refers to the priesthood term twice, and he gives us two different qualifiers each time. We are a holy and a royal priesthood. I would, I would suggest this. The people of God have been set apart and given authority to do God's work in the world. We are the work of his hands and hands to do his work. Peter mentions the priesthood twice. I mentioned that already. He, he mentions the priesthood twice. And, and, and as I said, this re, re, reflects or alludes back to what, what was going on in the Old Testament. He's reflecting back. He's alluding back to how God established a priesthood within the Israelite nation. And they were a special class of people. But there is no classification given here. He is saying, you, the church, all you exiles, all, all of you scattered across, all of you are a priesthood of believers. And he says, we are holy and we are royal. So let's deal with those two words just so we got it in our head as we talk about this priesthood. Holy. We've mentioned this a number of times because Peter uses this word over and over and over. He talks about us being holy and he talks about us being made holy. He talks about us acting in it, and he talks about us being, being called it by, by God. And, and, and so we, we, we have dealt with this already, but, it, but simply, just for those of you that aren't familiar with the term, it means that we are set apart. God chose us. He said, yep, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. And when he did that, in, in, just naturally, without anything that we've done, he sets us apart. When he chooses us, we are distinct in the world because not everyone is chosen. He says, holy, 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 holy. That makes you set apart immediately. You don't have to do anything to, to do that. It's just in, in the same way, on a much smaller and, and less divine scale, you came in this morning and you chose your chair. You made it holy unto yourself. You, you, well, I'm going to sit there. Nobody's stuff is there. I like it. I'm going to sit there. You made it holy unto yourself. And that's what God has done in his people and he has made us holy together he has drawn us together but then he also calls us royal and i think this refers to the authority that each of us have as believers to to approach him in his throne room in in, in his presence to walk into his presence if you remember in the israelite nation that there, there was really a mediator a constant mediator between God and his people. When God entered into covenant with them, do you remember what happened? So, so they see him and they hear him on the mountain and they are scared to death and they're like, Moses, you got to go for us. Because if we, we'll die. And God's like, yeah, they'll die. So, so they needed a mediator. We don't need that anymore. Oh, we, we need a mediator, but 
in our mediator. We, we, when we come to our mediator, when we come to Jesus, we come to God. You see, he's one and the same. We don't need a man to stand between us and God. We, we don't need a, a, another person. We have our Messiah. We, we have the one. And he came and he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. God in flesh, Emmanuel. He came, and now that's all we got to do is we have authority now to, to enter into his presence, to walk into the throne room, to walk into the most holy of places. We have authority to go there. We have been given that authority, but I, I think it be, goes beyond just our presence, our, our authority to walk into the presence of God, to have access to God. I think it's our authority to do work in the world, to act on his behalf, to do the work that he's given us to do. We'll deal with this more more specifically in the weeks to come. But let me just say now, just kind of as a, as a primer, just as a, a teaser in passing, Jesus gave to the church the keys to the kingdom. And he gave us authority to bind and to loose. To do work on his behalf in the world. And there's a reality that that, that takes authority. It takes his authority. And I think that's what Peter's referring to as he talks about us being royal. So we're set apart. We have been given special access and authority to do his work. What then does Peter mean when he calls us a priesthood? What does he mean? Well, again, I think much of our church tradition kind of leaves us hanging here. It leaves us unhealthy. In fact, I think this may be one of the unhealthiest Christian attitudes that we hold. That in some way you think that I am more holy than you. That's so untrue. I, I get it. I get it. I, I see how easy it is to think that because I preach and I study and, and, and I do church work day in and day out, I, I understand how easy it is to assume that I have a sacred job. But it is unhealthy to think that you and your role and your place in this earth is less sacred. You see, your job is sacred because you are sacred. You are the sacred one. It's not a role that's sacred. This, this secular and sacred divide, it has it so, messed us up so, so poor. I mean, it's bad. It doesn't exist in Christ. It has no place among his people. You have been made sacred. You are now sacred, and therefore you can act in sacred ways. You are his ministers in this world. You see, just consider this. So, so much of what we do, so much of what we do, we, we, we think, oh, I've I, I got to earn more money so I can get a bigger place, or I can have more stuff. That's not sacred. That's you doing work to build your own kingdom. To, to live under your own authority. That's not the authority he's put in his, in his people. He's given us authority to do his work, to, to work on his behalf, to do work in his name. And see, now as, as we go into our places of business, it doesn't matter if you're a if you're a ditch digger or a custodian sweeping floors or 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 a salesman or a doctor and from from the whole scheme from from the least 
the, the least requirements, like all you got to have is a high school education to the very highest requirements. You got to have like 30 years of school to get there. You don't need my permission. You don't need your boss's permission. You don't need a seminary degree. You have been made sacred by God. And so as you go into the world, you can do sacred work. You can go into the world and do your job to His glory and it therefore becomes sacred because as you work as, a, as, as hard and as diligently as possible, you reveal the image and hand of God in you. That is sacred. Our world needs that, brothers and sisters. Not, not that we don't need preachers. Not that we don't need leaders in the church, but we need a church who recognize their sacred position before God and their sacred authority in the world. If we are going to be a healthy church, we must quit thinking that this role is sacred and that one isn't. And I think it goes further than our jobs. I mean, whether we're sitting in our houses, around our tables with our families, fathers, mothers, children have a sacred role. Fathers to lead in their homes. Wives to, to follow along, to, to submit to the husband. We'll see that in First Peter here. The, 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 the children to obey the parents, always pointing, always leading, always moving to God, always striving to point people to Him. That's what the priesthood does, to act as a liaison. To, to, to just be a person who reveals the glory of God. That is sacred work in your neighborhoods. Your neighbors need sacred neighbors. In the church, every member of the church is a minister of the church and a minister to the church. That's what he's setting up. There may be leaders in ministry, but even those leaders are simply equipping everyone else to do the ministry. We are... We are, we are at the same time the work of his hands and the hands that do his work, you and I together. I'm telling you, I promise you, I, 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 I say this just as seriously as possible, and it's probably a little self-deprecating, but, but if you're counting on me to get it all done, it is not going to happen. I cannot serve you that well. We'll be a church trying to walk on a broken leg. And I'm telling you, that's not, what, that's not what God's called us to do. We all have a role, and it is sacred because we have been made priests. We've not only been made priests, but, but I'm going to take the next two, the next two of the five metaphors, I'm going to take them together. He says that we are a chosen race and a holy nation. The people of God are united by God from among the people's of the world to be one people from among all peoples to be one people we are one race we are one race these these two as i said we can do together and so often we we draw our lines along socioeconomic things like where we were born i'm an american citizen why am i an american citizen because i was born here and because I was born here, I grew up here with the ideology that's poured in on me, and I grow up around, and, and I'm patriotic. I'm patriotic enough that I served six years in the military, at least on one hand, I was patriotic. On the, on the other hand, I just wanted to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to write papers, and so I joined the Army instead. That's really honest. Then I got a little patriotic as I saw friends, you know, serving, and 
So that wasn't really my primary motive. So anyway, that, that's, a, that's another story for another time. So, so we are Americans. We are Americans by our, our, the place we're born. And, and I, I, I don't know how many of you feel this way, but, but it's easy to begin to think that we're better than everybody else, right? It's easy to begin to think, to look at other nations and think, oh, man, we got it figured out. If just everybody be like America, the world be a better place. But we don't just build on our national heritage, do we? We, we divide along ethnic and racial lines. Uh, it, it, it's, it's probably extremely evident that we do this in, in our nation today as we reap the consequences of our nation's failures in, in racial issues. It's a terrible place that we stand today, but it's a great place of opportunity because we are a sacred people placed in, a sac- uh, placed in this time for this purpose to, to do God's work. But we divide heavily across racial lines. But, but we press even further. It's not, just about, it's not just about our ethnicity or our racial heritage. It's about our lineage or our familial heritage. I mean, the reality is, is that most of us are going to be more helpful or more willing to serve someone that we are related to. I'm not saying that we won't ever help a stranger, and I'm not saying that we won't ever help somebody that's not related to us, but if we're forced to choose, I can only choose one. Am I going to choose my brother or the dude on the side of the street with a sign? Am I going to choose my family member by lineage, or am I going to choose my church family by Christ's heritage? You see, the reality is, in most cases, in our, in our traditions, in the way that we live, we are typically going to choose those that we grew up with, that we call family. But, Peter says that's not right. He shows us that there's something different going on here. He says we are a chosen race. Where Jesus was rejected, we are chosen. He was Jesus was chosen by God. We have been chosen by God. We are a chosen race. We are no longer separated by those distinctions. No longer. No longer am I just an American citizen or a Caucasian by race. Or I guess if to be politically correct. Now, I think the political, political correct term is Anglo. I don't even know if I'm Anglo. But that's the word being used. The thing is, I'm not that first. You're not, your, you're not your, your, your national heritage. You're not first and foremost your, your, your ethnic heritage. You're not first and foremost your familial heritage. You are first and foremost the people of God bound together in one race. In fact, if you think of what the Bible depicts as the races in the world, there's really only two. Those of Adam and those of Christ. In the gospel, there's only two races. Now, now the world and its fallen condition certainly divides. But Jesus is bringing us out and he is binding us together and he says you are one people. There's no more reason for, for us together in, in white church or black church or Latino or Korean or or, or Burmese or Chinese. I don't know how many. There's a bunch of churches around Springfield that are meeting because they simply are gathering around these ethnic lines. And, and I'm not saying that there's not some reason for that. It probably is because 
that that's where they find their expression and they're able to understand the language and they're able to relate and connect. But the reality is if we're just simply gathering because we think all white people are Christian and there's no black Christians, when we're wrong, he is bringing us out from among all people to be his people. We are one race, a chosen race, a holy nation. And so fighting and striving and working to demonstrate the diversity of his body among us is worthwhile. I told you at the beginning of the year, this is something we're going to work towards. I'm, I'm striving to build relationships. I've found it's just as difficult to build those relationships from my perspective. It's, it's difficult. I mean, it seems extremely inauthentic to walk up to another church leader and say, hey, I, I need to learn. Can you help me learn? Because it sounds like, oh, I just want to grow my church and I want to make it ethnically diverse. Well, well, certainly I'd love to see that, but, but that's not my goal. The glory of God in the gospel is that he is bringing us from many to be one. And there should be a beautiful expression of the diversity of his people. Fourth, the fifth, actually, those two were together. The fourth point, we are a people for his possession. The people of God belong to God. We are his treasured possession. Because of our natural desires to be rebellious, I mean, that's our flesh, right? We're, we're always raising up, we're kind of puffing up our chest and trying to be our own people. And, and, and hey, it's, it's really politically incorrect to say that people are property, so we don't go there, right? I mean, it's almost, almost stepping over a line. In fact, it, Christians haven't always gotten it right, and many times they've been on the wrong side of the argument, but by and large, the, the um, abolitionist movements were led by Christians because they began to understand that the only ones we can belong to, the only one we could belong to, is him. And there's this reality that happens inside of this passage is that Peter's not saying that, that only the church belongs to God. Peter understands that everyone and everything, every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live, all things that have ever existed in the world and all things that will ever exist in the world, they all belong to God. They all reside under his ownership and authority. But there's a special sense that Peter's giving us here. You see, we're not just, we're not just something that's, that's owned and thrown into the attic and forgotten about and actually left when you move out. I found a, 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 a racquetball racket up in our, in our attic. I never, well, I might have played racquetball once or twice, but you can tell I don't play often. It wasn't ours, Right? We're not that racquetball racket laying in the corner of the attic. We are a treasured possession. We are special to him. We, we are protected and preserved. And think of the lengths that he went to. Think of what he did in order to build this house, to assemble this people. drawn us together as his as his spiritual house as his holy and royal priesthood as his chosen nation and or his chosen race and his holy nation he has drawn us together and he has said you are my treasured possession how much did he treasure us how much did he long for us? Well, it's seen in the price that was paid for us. 
We weren't bought by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the very precious blood of Christ. We are His in a very special way. Well, let me just show you something in, in closing, just to wrap it up, and I hope strengthen your resolve to, to living as God's people in this world. He says in Exodus 19, it says in Exodus, actually God does say this, he speaks it through Moses. Let me just read this to you. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, the, 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 the Ten Commandments are about to be given. God is about to enter into covenant with these people and with the, with the Israelites. He has just led them out of Egypt, helped them cross the Red Sea on dry ground, delivered them from the hand of their oppressors, brought them up to the to the foot of the mount, uh, the base of the mount of Mount Sinai. He's about to enter into covenant with them, and he says this in verse five. And he says this to, to Moses to speak it to the people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words you shall speak to the people of israel that sound familiar see what peter's doing what israel was the church has become but there is one beautiful twist in this whole whole scenario you see, as he spoke those words to Moses to give to the Israelites, he said, as you obey me. And, and it really became their covenant and became conditional upon them living in obedience, following the law. You know how good they did that? Not so good. But now, now it's different. See, now we are God's spiritual house. We are his holy and royal priesthood. We are his chosen race and his holy nation. We are his treasured possession, not first because of our obedience, but because we have come to the one who he chose and is precious and said he is the cornerstone. We are the people of God, not because we have kept his covenant, but because we have come to the covenant keeper, Jesus. That's our promise he is doing this work he is building us up he is making us his priesthood he is making us his nation and his chosen race he is looking at us as his treasured possession because of the covenant keeper the one who is perfectly obedient his name is jesus won't you come to him? Keep coming to him. Let's pray.